Happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. On Wednesday of this week, I woke up to the song, Let It Snow. It got cold, apparently, overnight, and frost had coated the ground, and so my children decided that this was an occasion to strike up the Christmas music, which, to be honest, is okay with me. I like Christmas music, and we're only, as of this morning, 49 days out. One of the things that comes to my mind as I read through our passage this morning, we're in 1 Thessalonians Uh, In the back half of chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, in verses 6 through 11, because of their bringing Christmas music to my attention, one of the songs that sort of rang in my ears as I studied this week, I think it's from God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, it's the Tidings of Comfort and Joy. That's precisely what Timothy brings to Paul here in our passage, Tidings of Comfort and Joy. Paul basically bursts with delight at the news, that's what tidings are, at the news that Timothy brings to him about the faith of the Thessalonians. And as a result of Paul's delighted, joyful response to this news, we get a picture of what brotherly love looks like. And I say brotherly love, wanting you sisters to know that brotherly love includes sisterly love too. Use that phrase as Paul will later, as a generic masculine. It just means that you're included in there too. In the same way as when I say, all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I do not mean that to the exclusion of women. You're included. And you are included in Paul's exhortation to brotherly love. I'm I'm jumping ahead a little bit and stealing this idea of brotherly love from verse 9 of chapter 4. This is what he writes. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. In this passage, we see not only Paul's love for the Thessalonians but their love for him. We have a model of brotherly love and an example, a few examples, of what it produces. So your main idea this morning, if you're planning on tuning out the rest of the way, what you want to think on later in the week or as you read this passage is this. Brotherly love produces joy, comfort, and holiness. Those are our three words that will hang all of our ideas on this morning. Joy, comfort, and holiness. With that said, let's turn our attention to the passage. I'm going to read it, verse 17 in chapter 2, all the way down to the end of chapter 3 this morning. Would you stand with me in the honor of reading God's holy word? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were orphaned from you, brothers, for a short time, In face, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? 
Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and comfort you in your faith, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the gospel of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning hungry once again to be fed by the bread of your word. We ask that you would make it sweet on our tongues and satisfying to our stomachs. Pray that you would use your word to grow and strengthen us, to enliven us to you, to the spiritual realities in the world around us. Pray that as we feast on your word this morning, that our delight in Christ and our love for one another would increase and abound more and more. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember the setting of these verses. Paul has continued his argument from the very start that what he wants to do is remind the Thessalonians that they are loved and chosen by God. And part of the way that he sought to do that was to say, my ministry among you was not in vain. I know that you are loved and chosen by God because you received the word of God and I could see that the word of God is at work in you. You've endured persecutions and sufferings. I've heard reports of your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's encouraging them and sort of defending his ministry. He says, I know it wasn't in vain. We faithfully proclaimed the word to you in order to please God, not to please men. You received that word, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word 
of God. It's bearing fruit in you. That's where he started. That's verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2. And then Paul, that's him reminiscing over his time among the Thessalonians, how he preached to them, how they received the word. Then he shifted last week into sort of confessing his worry about the Thessalonians. He was worried that his labor among them might have been in vain. That they might have been found like that rocky soil in Jesus' parable of the soils, right? The rocky soil is quickly green. It receives the word with joy, but then it's quickly gone because persecution comes. The heat of persecution causes the faith of those in the rocky soil to wither. Paul is worried that persecution may have broken the faith of the Thessalonians. And so when he could bear it no longer, him and Timothy and Silas, he, along with his cohorts, decided to send Timothy to the Thessalonians, see how they were doing, so that he could instruct them and comfort them, to teach them more, to confirm them and establish them in the faith. So they send Timothy in order to get this report. And last week we talked about how Satan had made that necessary, keeping Paul and the others from returning to Thessalonica. And this week we see that Paul gets that report back from Timothy, those tidings of comfort and joy. And that shows up in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news or the gospel of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, verse 8, now we live because you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. It really is interesting early on here in verse 6, that word good news. It's the same source word from which we get gospel. And it's the only time that Paul uses the word gospel to describe anything other than the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified for sins and raised for justification. It's good news that comes to him. It's gospel news that comes to him about the faith And love among the Thessalonians. He is so thrilled by the fact that they are continuing to walk with Jesus. That the picture he uses to illustrate his excitement is the image of conversion. You see, Timothy brought us the gospel, verse 6, and then verse 8. Now we live It's brought him to life, this report, that they are walking in the truth. That they are walking faithfully with God. Paul says, you want to know what makes me come alive? Knowing that you are standing fast in the faith. There was this old WVU football player back from when I was in school, when we were good, long ago. WVU, for for you Southerners, it's West Virginia University, and and West Virginia is its own state. It's not the western part of Virginia, as some think. But when I was in school there, so long ago now, we were good at football. We even beat Georgia in the Sugar Bowl. You can look it up. It's true. I'm going to remind you again and again. We used to have this fullback, though, which is why I'm telling you this story. And he would, to get himself fired up for football games, he would take his helmet by the face mask 
and just smash it into his forehead until blood would come trickling down. A little crazy. Somebody asking, you know, why, why you do that? Well, it, that's what really gets me going for the game. Once I've bled a little bit, you know, crazy. When I thought of that when I thought of Paul. You know what gets Paul going? Not that he would bleed a little bit or hit himself. What gets him excited, what gets him pumped up about life is knowing that those he's shared the gospel with are continuing to walk in faithfulness to the gospel. Paul takes great joy at God's work in others. Look at verse 9. He says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before the Lord. Paul is saying we can't even give God enough thanks. We can't give God enough praise for the joy that God's work in you produces in us. Are you like Paul? Does God's work in other believers produce joy in you such that you can't give God thanks enough for it? Do you delight at God's work in other brothers and sisters in Christ? You see, brotherly love produces a joy in God's work in others that exceeds our joy at his work even in ourselves. It's hard to develop this kind of joy at God's work in others. Envy is a very difficult sin to defeat. I'll tell you, I'll confess, I struggle with this. And particularly, I remember struggling with it in seminary. In seminary, when you're learning how to do exegesis, and you're learning all those big words like hermeneutics and anthropomorphism, or what did I use? Uh, ancillary in the meeting the other night. They were, we were keeping track of who could use big words. I think I was in the lead. But When you're learning those things, you also get put in what's called sermon delivery class. And in sermon delivery, what you do is you sit with five or six other students, none of whom really want to hear you preach or be there, and, and they listen to you preach and they offer you feedback. And one of the things I found happening in my heart in those classes was envy. I mean, these brothers were really good preachers. And I could remember sitting back and thinking, man, I would really love to preach like that. I didn't have joy at what God was doing in them. I sort of resented it. Because I wished that he would be doing that work in, in me. I know that this struggle was really bad, not because I saw it at the time, but because on an occasion down the road a couple years, I invited a, a good friend of mine to preach at my former church. His name's Nathaniel. I'll bring him up from time to time. And he preached on Psalm 51, one of the most beautiful sermons I've ever heard. And I sat there and I was so happy. I was happy to have heard the word. I was, I was taking joy in his work as a preacher. And I thought to myself, I'm supposed to feel like this all the time. I'm supposed to take joy at God's work in my brothers and sisters like I'm taking joy at God's work in Nathaniel right now. But, but I don't. And why not? 
Why would I rather resent God's work in someone else instead of rejoicing over it? Maybe some of you are sinful enviers like me. You struggle to love other people when you see God's work in them, particularly when he's doing something in them or in their lives that you wish he were doing in your life. If you're like me, the only prescription is to repent and to pray that God would give you the type of brotherly love that Paul has for the Thessalonians. A heart that delights, that takes joy at what God is doing in the lives of others. Because ultimately you want God to be glorified rather than yourself. This is a hard thing. But we ought to practice it and pursue it. Brotherly love produces joy at God's work in others. Children, I wonder, do you delight when your brothers and sisters obey your mommy and daddy and then are rewarded even when you haven't? Like they're, you know, whatever the reward is, getting some kind of candy and you're over there, you you disobeyed, you didn't get the candy. Are you delighting in the fact that they're being rewarded? This This is what we're talking about here. Taking joy at God's work in others. It doesn't happen naturally. It is a work wrought by the Spirit. It is one we must pray for and pursue. Brotherly love produces joy at God's work in others, and brotherly love produces joy in being together with God's people. This is the character of this text. There's one big idea, one thing that you can't miss. It's how much Paul and the Thessalonians want to be together in Christian fellowship. Look back at at 2.17. We're separated from you in person, literally in face, not in heart. We have a desire to see you face to face. Verse 18, we wanted to come to you. In verses 1 of chapter 3 and verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul talks about how they wanted to be with them so much that they couldn't bear it anymore. They had to send Timothy to learn about them. Then in verse 6, we long, or we heard that you long to see us as we long to see you. Down in verse 10, we're praying earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. You have this little benediction, this transitory prayer in verse 11. What is Paul praying for? That the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Paul, Timothy, and Silas delight in being together with God's people. There is a joy that love for one another produces in us that draws us into relationship with one another. Brotherly love desires to be with God's people. Do you desire to be with God's people? Do you desire to see God's people face to face? I mean, do you look forward to the Lord's Day? I'm I'm really happy we have so many opportunities to, to get together 
here at First Baptist. You know, we have Sunday morning and, and Sunday night. I've heard lots of folks have delighted in our, our Sunday night activities. And we have Wednesday night. We eat together. There are Bible studies. This week there was a women's conference. There are a lot of good opportunities to get together during the week. And I, and I wonder, do you delight to do those things or do you just sort of do those things? I'm not saying that if you're just sort of doing them as an act of obedience that that's bad. No, keep, keep doing them. But while you're doing them, work on shaping your heart, on training your heart to love those people that you are gathering with. Pray that God would cultivate within you a desire for his people. I think one of the ways you can do this, particularly, is in regards to this gathering on the Lord's Day. This is the gathering, this is the time during the week where I can tell you, thus saith the Lord, that we should gather together to worship Jesus. And so pray that you would develop a heart for it and prepare, prepare for the Lord's Day. Make it the best day of your week. If you're a student, high school or college, one of the ways you can prepare for the Lord's Day and make it a day of celebration is by resolving not to do homework on this day. Say, I'm going to get it all done before then, and if it's not done, then it's not done. Because the Lord's Day is the Lord's. I'm going to worship. I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to spend time with my family. But the Lord's Day is a day for resting in Christ and rejoicing before Him. Not not going to do homework on that day. Maybe you're responsible for cooking in your house. Some of the things you can do is try to prepare meals ahead of time so that you're not taking all of your time, you know, slaving away over a hot stove. Make the crock pot meal that you can plug in in the morning. Come up with something you can just pop in the oven or throw on the grill. Plan to take real rest and to create real time together with God's people and with your family. Plan for it. Plan to make the Lord's day unique so that you look forward to it. You go, you know what? I don't have to cook all day on the Lord's day. I'm not going to have to do homework. I can't wait for Sunday because I'm not going to be working on homework on the Lord's day. If you have children, parents, one of the things you can do to prepare for this time together is lay out your children's clothes the night before. Lay, Lay out your clothes the night before. Be ready to go. Explain to your kids, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is the expectation. And you know what else? One of the things we do in my house, it might be cheesy, but we do Sundays on Sundays, right? Ice cream happens on the Lord's Day. This is one of those things that lets us know we celebrate on this day. We're excited about it. A point here is is not for me to give you a long list of thou shalt but to try and help you think about how, how you can make the Lord's Day in your own heart something that you look forward to, the highlight of your week. So that when somebody asks you on Monday, what was the best thing you did this week? How was your weekend? That your reaction, your instinct is not to respond with, well, I went out into the deer stand and sat for a little while and it was really great and peaceful. But your reaction is to say, I got to go to church on Sunday morning. I heard God's word preached. Maybe, maybe it would help all of us if we started anticipating the Lord's Day 
like we anticipate Saturdays in the fall. I mean, if you're like me and you love college football, I mean, you just naturally consecrate Saturdays in the fall for college football. You, know, you, you think about, all right, what, what are the tasks I have to get done on Saturday? They need to, be, they need to happen before noon, so whatever it takes. You know, if I've got to get up at 4 a.m., we're going to get up at 4 a.m., but at noon, the football starts you're also thinking, you know, what am I going to make? We, hamburgers, maybe some bratwurst, you know, maybe, maybe we'll get really good, we'll smoke some meat or some ribs, and we're, we're going to eat good on Saturdays, you know, and then, I, you know, you get that schedule out, you figure out which games you're going to watch, you know, Bulldog fans, I don't even know how you get into this, they just win every week, it's sort of boring. <laughs> Alabama fans in here, I, I get it, there's been a little stress recently. But if you figure out what games you're going to watch, you're ready for Saturdays. Friends, we should look forward to Sunday like that with a greater expectation and a greater joy. Somehow we have become numb to what God does when God's people gather together like we're gathered together right now. Realize what's happening here? When we gather together in the name of Jesus, we do so to celebrate what Jesus has done on the cross. Friends, he died on the cross to pay for the sins of all who will repent of their sin and trust in him. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, that's the good news. That you can be forgiven of your hate-filled rebellion against God. That instead of being sentenced to hell, rightly... For eternity, you can be welcomed into heaven. As one of God's children, you you can have relationship with God, non-Christian. Believe. Talk to somebody about it. We would love to talk to you about how to follow Jesus. Christian, if you're coming, you're coming because your sins have been forgiven. You're here to rejoice that you have been reconciled with God. Church, you have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you come here to celebrate that reality. Our Christian calendar is a weekly one. Every week we remember that Jesus died on Good Friday, and every Sunday we come together to remember that he got up again, that he is risen from the dead. Every week we come to celebrate Easter Every week we come to say, he is risen, he is risen indeed, and so too shall we be raised from the dead unto eternal life. That's what we're doing here. We are celebrating the wonderful work of Jesus. We're celebrating that we who were dead have been brought to life. How can we not desire to gather together here? Every week we are reminded that we who were once enemies of God have been made his sons and daughters. It's incredible. We should be excited about it. When we come and sing the word and pray the word and preach the word and listen to the word, we hear God's word, not the words of mere men. We hear from God. We encounter God as we gather together with one another. You should desire this gathering. Pray that you would. Prepare your heart to delight in the Lord's day. 
We should desire to gather together and we should accept no substitutes. I am thankful for digital gathering. It's really an oxymoron. It's like not gathering, gathering. I'm thankful for it, for for those that are homebound, for those who, who can't get here. But they will tell you themselves, it is a poor substitute. They would much rather be here, be embodied face to face. So some, some of us, even in this room, are prone to sitting at the computer on Sunday morning instead of coming here. Friends, you are robbing yourself. You're robbing yourself of what God has for you. To try and substitute digital gathering for the actual gathering together with God's people is tantamount to FaceTiming into your own wedding ceremony. Right? Sure, you could watch it, but you understand the importance of being embodied at that event, being present. You want to be there face to face with your loved one. That's what we're doing when we come together as a church. We come together as the bride of Christ before the bridegroom. Our vows have been made. The band has been struck up. Hors d'oeuvres are being served. It is a glorious thing that we do when we come and sing and laugh and cry and share our sorrows and encourage one another and rejoice in the Lord Jesus together. Man, I hope that you love this time together. You read Paul here over and over. I want to see you face to face. I want to see you face to face. I hope that you would have that same sentiment. I told Lucas this week, you know, I, was going to, I'm, I am going to use the illustration, but he had no idea what I was talking about. Hopefully, you are more cultured and civilized than him. <laughs> you see, in this decade long ago, in the year of 1993, there was a very talented musical artist named Babyface. And he had a song, I, I, I think this is the title of it, which is, When Can I See You Again? You probably know it if you heard it, unless you're Lucas. But it would just, when can I see you again? I'm not a great singer. When will my heart beat again? Yeah, that's basically the song over and over again. But that, I was thinking about it, like, that's how we should feel about getting together with God's people. When can we see one another again? When can we get face to face before the Lord? Man, I hope you feel that way. I hope that you would pray that God would give you the desire to gather together with his people. Because when we love one another, like Jesus calls us to love one another, that brotherly love will produce joy in us. A joy that comes when we gather together with God's people. Brotherly love desires to be with God's people. It produces joy at God's work in others. It produces a joy in us as we gather together with God's people. And brotherly love produces comfort for God's people. Look at verses 6 and 7. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the gospel of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distresses and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. 
The word for comforted here is the same word that is translated exhort in your ESV in verse 2. So, so think of it in light of that, right? He's writing to Timothy in the gospel of Christ to establish and comfort you in your faith. And then verse 3, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. So the, the word has a very large range of meaning, okay? But typically, it has two nuances. That of command, as in exhort or urge, and that of comfort. And I think what, what they should have done is translated it comfort in verse 2 because of what happens in verse 3. Comforted in affliction. And then it's what happens in the context of verse 7 too, right? In all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. Paul is, is pointing out what I want you to see He's showing us how God works. There's a holy irony here. Paul sends Timothy to establish and comfort the Thessalonians. But now, when Timothy comes back to Paul, it is Paul, Silas, and Timothy who are comforted. See how incredible God is? He comforts us in our afflictions by using the faithfulness of other brothers and sisters in their afflictions. It's incredible. Paul teaches it elsewhere too. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us In all our affliction, here's the purpose, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see how this works? He says, we receive comfort from God so that we can comfort one another. And the comfort that others receive comes from God Through us. God uses means. This is why it's a... a, I know people do this all the time, and I'm I'm not trying to make you feel bad. But it's just unwise when suffering strikes you to go, I'm going to just be in my house by myself to mourn. Because you are cutting yourself off from one of the greatest means that God intends to use for your comfort. Sometimes we do that. We just seclude ourselves and say, God, comfort me, comfort me, comfort me. And I feel like if we could hear God, he might be saying, I have. I've given you the church. Go be comforted. God comforts Christians with other Christians. What a spectacular truth that you might be the means God uses to bring comfort to a brother or sister who is in great distress and affliction. Brotherly love calls us to comfort one another and to be comforted. And it is true, when we see others suffering and standing fast in the Lord through it, We ourselves are comforted. We are encouraged. We are inspired to suffer well ourselves. Comfort and courage are contagious. Sort of like the man who gets on a plane for the first time. 
He's not keen on flying. He's heard that you're shoulder to shoulder, that the meals are really tiny, it gets kind of stuffy, and he doesn't generally like being around people. And then once he's in the air, at cruising speed, all of a sudden the plane is tossed to and fro like a ship at sea. His eyes get wide, sweat begins to pool on his forehead, and he is reaching for his seatbelt and that thing that falls down from the ceiling at the same time. And he's thinking, oh my goodness, I wish I would have paid attention at the beginning when they were going over all those instructions that nobody listens to. I'm going to die. But as he ties his seatbelt together, couldn't get it fastened, he looks over and he sees that the other passengers are very calm, cool, and collected. In fact, a stewardess has begun to saunter over to him. And she bends down very quietly, speaks to him like he's a child. Sir, it's just a bit of turbulence. Nothing to worry about. He calms down. See, God has designed the church to work the same way. When we're going through turbulence ourselves, it can feel like the whole world is crashing down around us. But what really helps is when we are able to look out and see the faith and the courage of all those who have suffered before us. You are not enduring any affliction that is not common to the people of God. If you are going through something God has another saint that's been through it who is there to calmly walk over to you and comfort you and to say, dear brother, dear sister, I've been where you have been and it is hard. I've watched loved ones suffer. I've watched them die. But this is what I've learned. God is good. He is true. I don't have answers for you, but I can tell you this. Christ is the sure and steady anchor. He will not let you be moved. He will get you through this. We are comforted there. Brothers and sisters, seek to comfort one another. Recognize that when afflictions come to you, that there are other brothers and sisters you can look to and say, I need comforted, I need encouraged help. God's designed us as the means by which we are to comfort one another. We are the instruments through which God regularly comforts his people. Brotherly love produces comfort for God's people. And brotherly love produces Holiness produces holiness. Look here, starting in verse 10. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He's going to fill that out later in the book. I'll explain that more. He's just saying we want to teach you more about what you don't know. And in the Thessalonians case, that's about the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord. Verse 11. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all 
as we do for you. So that, here's the purpose, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So Paul prays quickly here that he could see the Thessalonians so that he could teach them more. He prays that their love would overflow for one another. He does not pray that they would be taken out of their afflictions or that their circumstances would change. Maybe he did, but he didn't record that for us here. It's very interesting. You see, too, when Jesus' disciples are suffering in the book of Acts, they don't pray for a change in circumstances. They pray for boldness to continue preaching Christ. And I can't help but think this should inform how we pray for one another. It's not that we shouldn't pray for a a change in difficult circumstances or relief from afflictions. But what I do want to say is I think we ought to pray with the godliness of our brothers and sisters as the priority in their lives. Do you pray that way? Are your prayers marked by a deep concern that Christ be formed in your brothers and sisters? Do you pray for the holiness of others? That's what Paul is praying for for the Thessalonians. And it's to this end in verse 13. Let's let's read it one more time. So that he, that's God, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. There's a lot going on there. But I think the crux of it is this. Paul prays for the love of the Thessalonians to abound so that God might strengthen their hearts so that they might endure and be found holy on the day of judgment. It's pretty staggering. Paul's prayer teaches us that one of the means that God will use to persevere us in the faith and keep us loyal to Jesus is the love of other Christians. You say, I pray that your love for one another would be in excess, that it would overflow, and that through it you would be kept and made more and more holy so that when Jesus returns, you will be able to be found blameless before him. That's pretty, pretty staggering. One of the means that God uses to produce holiness in the lives of his people is other Christians. One of the ways God prepares you and I for eternity is through our relationships with one another. Our relationships They help get us to heaven. That has pretty significant implications. Do you understand what's at stake? It has evangelistic implications. As our love for one another abounds more and more, that we would have love not just for one another, but for all. That whether or not someone hears the gospel has to do with whether or not we will pray for them. Or faithfully proclaim it to them. 
Those are some, some heavy implications. Church, do you see what is at stake in our life together? We're, we're to love one another all the way to glory. The stakes are really high. Is your love for your parents, for your children, for your friends, your neighbors, is it helping them toward holiness? God intends it to. Friends, we should help one another be found loyal to King Jesus when he returns, blameless and holy in his sight. Because we have lived out that declaration of the gospel. Paul's talking about sanctification here, right? Not justification. Remember we said way back, justification is just as if I never sinned and, and I did everything right, declared right with God. But now we're talking about sanctification, which is becoming in practice what we've been declared in Christ. So declared holy in Christ, being made holy like Christ. And and Paul is saying our love for one another is going to help make us holy like Christ. It's going to produce that fruit that proves we are rooted in Jesus. So do you see what's at stake as you help love one another to glory? We, We ought to love one another as Jesus has loved us. King Jesus has loved us, brothers and sisters. He desired to be present with us so much that he took on flesh and became a man so that he might see us face to face. His desire to be with us meant that he would lay down his life for us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus loved us enough to endure the cross And to be raised up from the dead so that we could be raised with him. Jesus' sufferings under God's wrath purchased for us the comfort of God's favor and God's Holy Spirit. Jesus' faithful life and his loyal love ensure that we will get to glory. And so we aim, we pray for a brotherly love for one another. That is patterned after Jesus' love for us. Church, let us take joy in God's work in each other. Let us take joy in being together. Let us delight in the comfort that God gives to us through one another. Let's love one another unto holiness. Let's close with Paul's words at the end of chapter 5 and verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have called us unto yourself. We thank you that all who come to you will never be cast out. We thank you that you are ever faithful, ever true, that you have saved us, you are saving us, and you will save us fully and finally when you return to make all things new. We pray in your name. Amen.